Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 32 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm excited to welcome deep space navigator Carly Adam as my featured guest. Adam is the lead optical navigation engineer at Kinetics Aerospace Space Navigation and Flight Dynamics Practice, where she has worked since 2011. Adam was a navigator for the historic first reconnaissance of the Pluto system by NASA's New Horizons mission in 2015, and she was navigation manager for the sample acquisition phase of NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission. One of the most complex navigation missions ever flown, OSIRIS-REx has already set many aerospace records, including being the smallest body ever orbited by a spacecraft. And on October 20th of 2020, the mission successfully collected a sample from the surface of the asteroid Bennu, which will be returned back to Earth in 2023. With degrees in aerospace engineering in 2018, Adam was honored with the NASA Early Career Achievement Medal for her contributions to the field of optical navigation. And today, we're going to be talking about how the science of interplanetary optical navigation is giving space scientists the means to explore our solar system with never-before-possible precision. Adam joins us from Chicago. Coralie, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Thanks for having me. First off, uh, what do you classify as deep space? So typically these days we classify deep space as anything outside of the Earth-Moon system. So that accounts for you know the, the rest of our solar system and beyond. When you talk about deep space navigation, you're talking about navigation outside the Earth-Moon system. Right. Yeah. Deep space navigation um, is kind of isolated from the, the Earth-Moon system. You know, the, the Apollo era and the, the human space flight had different communication systems uh, and navigate onboard navigation systems set up uh, that were decoupled from the robotic exploration of deep space. Uh, however, a lot of that um, was started with some robotic probes to the moon. So it kind of built up with the moon, but then uh, eventually uh, most of deep space exploration is is outside of that system. You know, most people, when they hear about NASA or the European Space Agency or the, uh, the former Soviet Union, now Russia, sending uh, interplanetary probes, they don't really give, it, give the, the aspect of navigation too much thought. Yeah, you know, it's... Uh, spacecraft operations is not something that gets a lot of attention, um, but it's actually has a lot of really cool engineering and science problem solving um, that happens behind the scenes. Um, so I hope that listeners today learn a little bit more about you know what what it takes to pull off some of these amazing exploration missions. But it takes you know teams of dozens, if not hundreds, of people uh, operating and, and years of analysis um, to prepare and to design trajectories and to come up with the, the plan. Um, the mission plan and, and all of the science obje- objectives and how the navigation is going to fly and achieve those science objectives of the mission. Um, so there's there's a lot that happens behind the scenes that's pretty cool, actually. And obviously, you that that's your chosen field is uh, spacecraft operations and navigation. Yes, yeah, and I I 
couldn't decide for a long time when I got interested in space, you know, do I go engineering or science route? Because those are often siloed. You know, you go into uh, planetary science or astronomy, or you go into aerospace engineering and build the vehicles. But navigation is kind of bridges the gap. We have to fly and navigate, you know, flight hardware um, to achieve the science. So it's kind of embedded uh, as kind of a central node in um, space operations uh, where we bridge from the science objectives of the mission to actually uh, enabling that by uh, flying in in the right way uh, to capture the data. And as I noted in Forbes, a NASA's Mariner 4 spacecraft launched from Cape Canaveral on November 28, 1964, became the first successful flyby of the Red Planet. Mariner 4's amazing flyby, some seven and a half months after launch, used only radio tracking data to navigate. So there's two um, types of data that uh, are used in deep space navigation. Uh, there's So there's two measurements. You know, you don't have GPS. You're not uh, orbiting around Earth or on, on the ground. So we only really have two things. We have one is the radio metric tracking data. So that is uh, when the spacecraft is in a communication link with ground stations on Earth, we call the deep space network. We have information about the, the distance, how long it took for the signal to leave this this deep space network on Earth, travel to the spacecraft and return. And we also uh, know the frequency of the return signal, um, which tells us about the velocity of the spacecraft uh, along that line of sight. So um, we get those two primary measurements, uh, range and Doppler are the radio measurements that we use um, to, to navigate um, and those are, you know, those were the first measurements. Optical navigation came later, and that really um, is required for for only certain applications that require very um, close in um, uh, operations around an object. Maybe we don't know as much about. We don't know its orbit or its position in space as well. But the early pioneer, I mean, Mariner um, missions uh, to Mars, those used radio only track uh, data. And, you know, it didn't have as, as precise of, of navigation as you might get with optical navigation today, um, but it was sufficient for those early uh, explorations. And, and most of the large, uh, you know, planetary exploration missions in the past have all been able to pull off all the requirements with, with only radio data. That's amazing. And it was not using any sort of celestial navigation. It was just using radio tracking. Is that right? You know, every spacecraft typically has star trackers on board to help determine its attitude. So uh -huh. there's a little bit of a fine line when, you know, what you call or consider celestial navigation because stars are used in space to tell our uh, orientation, you know, where we're pointed. It doesn't help us uh, in the same way from a navigation perspective as uh, say if you were you know on a, on a boat in the middle of the ocean you were looking up and you're fixed to the earth's uh, radius and you're in, and you're looking up and what stars are above you uh, tell you where you are for us when we're not anchored to a planet that's rotating and orbiting and we're, we're uh, you know a spacecraft is is flying on its own uh, the stars provide the orientation but the navigation where you are and what velocity um, you have, that's determined by radio and by the optical navigation where we image, you know, with stars, but with the object in the foreground. So then we're, you know, using the stars to make sure we really know where this where the picture was pointed when it was taken. Um, but then the real information is where is the object in the field of view or where are the landmarks in the field of view. 
So on the Mariner 4, do you happen to know if, if it was using any star trackers or was it just... You know, it wasn't using star trackers for navigation um, specifically. I don't know if it was using it for attitude estimation on board, uh-huh. um, but but what, there was no optical navigation. There was no taking pictures of Mars with stars in the background and downlinking those uh, to help determine where the spacecraft is flying relative to Mars. Because Mars is such a large, ob- a large, uh, massive object in our solar system, and we've uh, been been tracking it and and um, know its orbit around the sun so well that radio. Um, is sufficient for us targeting and getting in, getting close for a flyby of Mars, especially because you know days before the flyby or or even weeks, you start to sense the gravity of Mars. Whereas a small body mission like Bennu or Pluto, Pluto, you know, we didn't know precisely, we didn't know its orbit very well, and we also the, the gravity wasn't strong enough to, to for us to sense in that radio data. Um, as early as we needed to. So um, some missions, you know, uh, it just depends on what the objective is and the accuracy required. And a lot of missions only require, um, you know, a a level of accuracy that can be achieved with radio only uh, navigation. And then some that require really precise proximity operations or um, something around an object that we don't know as much about uh, or doesn't have as much mass. That's when we have uh, the need for optical navigation, such as a, a, an asteroid, and we're going to cover that later. But but in terms of uh, Mariner Four, the star tracking navigation was probably just for the orientation of the spacecraft as it was traveling. Yeah, to orient itself in three D space, star trackers are what most spacecraft, at least contemporary spacecraft, use to uh, you know to, to fit to know where it's pointed and to slew you know towards Earth, towards the Sun, towards the object, you know where it, where it is pointed in inertial space. We use the celestial sphere as a reference point and what for do you, our and orientation. What do, you, what do you mean by the term inertial space? Navigation is all about uh, timing and um, and positioning, and so we need to have uh, you know, you can uh, ha- have multiple different reference frames. You can express your position, your velocity, um, what with respect to you know any place in, and frame in the solar system. We call we call inertial space um, is uh, you know is the background you know the stars that that are essentially you know fixed they're not moving um moving on us or or you know we know precisely where they're located Mm -hmm. um so we can use those as kind of anchor points they tell us and we can rely on these celestial sources that we have accurate catalogs of their positions we can rely on those to tell us how we're oriented in space Mm -hmm. so the 3d orientation exactly and so the, the radio tracking how does it actually work Sure. So, like I mentioned, there's the Deep Space Network, which is a set of large antennas um, located in three parts of the globe to basically cover um, you know, the different areas of the sky. Right. And uh, there are multiple stations there, and uh, they have the most precise atomic clocks, you know, a clock that's the size of a giant room um, that uh, <laughs> that is essential because timing... and timing is everything with navigation you have to you know if you the more precise you can measure time um the the better accuracy you have in your navigation so you precisely know when you the signal leaves the antenna and transmits towards the spacecraft 
that spacecraft receives it with with its antenna and and transmits the signal back. So you have a two way connection there, okay. and the time it takes for um, you know being able to very accurately accurately measure how long it takes for that signal to get to the spacecraft and back, and what the shift in the frequency of that signal is um, tells us what the range and what the um, velocity is. Um, the Doppler shift, you know, the velocity uh, along that one direction. So it's it's a limited measurement. It, it tells us position and velocity along one line. Um, it doesn't tell us the, and we have to back out the, the 3D position and velocity based on that. Right. Um, and that's where optical navigation often comes in as a supplement because the, the optical navigation is pointing cameras on the spacecraft towards the object of interest that you're trying to navigate towards or around and it completes uh, the triangle you know you have the tr you have um, knowledge now of where the spacecraft is relative to earth you know um, you have some information about where your target is relative to earth and the sun because mm -hmm. you've been tracking it for centuries of oftentimes and um, and then the third component is the, the, the opnav that tells you gives you information about where your spacecraft is relative to the target Okay, so the optical navigation, which you you abbreviate as OpNav, the pre-promotion that I did for this episode is a picture of you, I believe, in front of one of the tracking stations, uh, the Deep Space Network track tracking antennas. Is that right? Yes, it is actually. Now, where where was that one taken? That was taken in uh, Goldstone, California, um, and that was the the Lucy team went out together to. Um, uh, to tour the, the deep space network and uh, see some of the, you know, the instrumentation that was going to be it's going to be used on our mission. And we're going to talk about Lucy a bit later, uh, but that's a forthcoming mission which you're a part. So back in the '60s, you know, not to belabor the point about the Mariner Four, the deep space network was pretty rudimentary. Yeah, well, yeah, we we use this word all the time in navigation, uh, bootstrapping. We are bootstrapping our way through the solar system, and uh, <laughs> and it started, you know, in the in the fifties and sixties. Uh, um, you know, every I'm reading, I've been reading this book, The Navigators, which is a history of deep space navigation, and it's just been amazing to to read uh, about how you know every mission incrementally uh, had improvements. The software was getting better. The the computer systems were improving. Improving, uh, and the capabilities. So all the navigation happens on the ground, but even but even still, during that time, you know, it was punch card um, um, computer programs. And how do you edit data? Say you have an outlier data point that's affecting your navigation solution. You have to edit that punch card and rerun the whole program. So just the capabilities, both in the technology and uh, the size of the antennas that were being built, it all, you know, it all bootstrapped its way up to what is the state of the art now. Spacecraft often are sending out, you know, kilowatts of power uh, when it leaves the spacecraft's antenna. But by the time it reaches the Earth, it's often a whisper, you know, orders, orders of magnitude, uh, um, lower power that the signal gets dispersed over space. So, so what the deep space network is listening for are like whispers in the solar system uh, from distant, from these distant spacecraft. It's pretty amazing that, that they're able to collect and uh, the signals and and collect all of the data when it's such a faint signal that they're um, they're picking up on the on the Earth. So let's talk about the New Horizons mission, which uh, by anyone's uh, view has been a, a great success. Uh, as I wrote in Forbes, NASA's New Horizons spacecraft's uh, feat of flying within 
7,800 miles of Pluto's surface at a clip of some 13 kilometers per second required two independent ground-based navigation teams using both state-of-the-art in-situ optical navigation, which is your ballywick, as well as radio tracking from NASA's Deep Space Network. As I noted, New Horizons uh, used both radio and optical navigation to get to Pluto, which is only about half the size of our moon, but circles our sun roughly every 248 years. And the mission's navigation was led by a branch of Kinetics Aerospace based in Simi Valley, California, with a second independent navigation team at, the J- at NASA's JPL lab in Pasadena. Uh, the teams had to hone the New Horizons spacecraft's 3 billion mile flight trajectory to fit inside a rectangular flyby delivery zone measuring only 300 kilometers by 150 kilometers. You know, to put it in perspective, we had one shot to get to Pluto, and it was a very long cruise, and we, we needed to optimize. You know, you want to use every second and if, uh, you can to take pictures, every, um, you know, bit of space on your uh disk drive and uh, and really maximize the science. This is a once in a lifetime first ever exploration of Pluto and its many moons. Um, so it required uh, targeting a very small box in space that, that we were navigating to um, in order to achieve that. If we delivered the spacecraft in that box, um, all of, then all of the science, all the sequencing, the pointing, the mosaics, um, they, they would uh, capture um, the brilliance of Pluto and its moons instead of, um, you know, black sky. So, um, so it required a, uh, um, you know, very precise navigation. Um, this was Kinetics, uh, my company's first uh, optical navigation mission. So we actually designed and built our software uh, for Pluto specifically, um, and uh, and so so JPL provided an independent um, kind of navigation using their uh, historic um, you know tools that were built up for the Voyager missions, um, and then and then we uh, ran our our new software and um, and we had a great collaboration and obviously it led to a very successful flyby of the Pluto system um, and it was just just amazing. Just how difficult was it? At any point, was there any doubt about you would achieve this? rectangle that you would be able to actually fly fly into this rectangular bit of space from such a great distance um the biggest challenge in deep space navigation is that you're exploring the unknown you're approaching an object that's never been seen before and you need to have you know as many tools in your toolbox for uh you know as the the object starts to reveal itself in your pictures um you know how you're going to model that, how you're going to, you know, as I mentioned, um, actually I haven't mentioned too much about how navigation works, but the two measurement types, the, the radio and, and the, the optical, um, those get uh, merged together and uh, they're used to estimate not only the spacecraft's position and velocity, but dozens of other parameters of forces acting on the spacecraft. For example, uh, solar radiation pressure, the gravity of the object that you're flying by. Um, there's a lot that goes into uh, um, a lot of delicate balance that happens in the navigation and orbit determination um, side of things. Taking the, the data and then using very limited measurements to estimate um, a lot of different parameters. So, uh, so at Pluto, the challenge was 
we didn't know what Pluto looked like. We knew it had some real dark spots. Uh, Hubble had, you know, maybe gotten four or five pixels resolution um, and could see strong albedo features, really dark spots, really bright spots. Uh, so we knew that going in. But that kind of thing, being able to model that on the fly, being able to see as it's being revealed, um, you know, how that might affect we're trying to extract a measurement from these pictures of Pluto and use that for navigation. And there could be, you know, the more accurately we can model Pluto means the more accurately we can um, navigate to Pluto and, and, and actually get an accurate measurement. Um, and what do you and, mean by model Pluto in that sense, in this sense? So, yeah. So, so when you, you know, you, you look at a picture of Pluto it's got dark spots, you know, maybe it's not fully, it's not, a, uh, it's a crescent or, you know, it has, um, you know, a phase angle to it. It's not a full moon. It's, um, how do you say what is the center of mass of Pluto? Um, is it perfectly round? Is it, ob you know, is it oblong? Uh, how do these variations in the, um, the dark spots affect your ability to say, yes, this is the center of Pluto. This is where we're heading towards, or, you know, this is what we're, the measurement we're trying to find is the center. Um, and that if that's off by even a couple pixels uh, systematically, you know, if that is biased, if, if our measurements that we're, we're extracting from the OpNav images are biased, then that can um, bias our whole navigation solution. And we could be blind to that. So, you know, it, it's really, I'll, these missions, most of the time, what you're doing is preparing for as many possibilities you can think of and having as many tools in your toolbox to, to model what, you know, what you're about to encounter, uh, the better off you're going to be once you get there. If I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying is the more precise you can get a sense of the actual physical reality of the object itself, the better you will be able to navigate through this tiny little rectangle that uh, that you've targeted yes that's right and it's really um that's kind of an, getting back to the word bootstrapping um you know you, you got to start somewhere you have some a priori, a priori knowledge uh -huh. of um you know we had some information from hubble we had some knowledge of where pluto was based on tracking it for a third of its orbit around the sun um and then we're you know our job is to continue to refine that so we're kind of you know we're building on uh, the science and then we're um, expanding it and, um, and and we need to leverage whatever we're seeing in real time and work very closely with the science teams who are producing model, new models, um, new higher resolution data is coming in and, uh, and there's a feedback loop there that, um, that helps aid the navigation team in, um, in refining our, uh, our measurements and, um, you know, our knowledge of where, where we're heading. And that was essential at Pluto. Um, there were uh, many scientists that we worked closely with and we were getting updated maps uh, daily. Um, and, uh, and we were using those and implementing those to, to, to uh, model, um, you know, simulate, basically simulate the surface of Pluto and compare that with uh, what we were seeing in the images mm -hmm. in order to extract that measurement. By doing all this, you were able not only to have a not only to have a successful flyby of Pluto, but also of its moon Charon and some of its other moons. Uh, I believe it even discovered a couple of moons uh, during this flyby. Yes, the Pluto system uh, has many, uh, many moons, and um, w we discovered them kind of 
over time. So at, at launch, we only knew about Sharon. And then um, the use of Hubble helped ident- uh, identify um, two more moons that we found out about during cruise. So then we had to say, okay, well, let's um, um, update our plans, make sure that we're going to slew and point and get pictures of those guys too. Mm-hmm. Um, and those also really helped us in navigation. So Nix and Hydra are two smaller moons of Pluto that are farther out. That allowed us actually tracking those. Those were smaller. Um, where Pluto was, res- once it was resolved, you know, we had all these albedo variations. It was very challenging to determine the center of Pluto. But um, Nix and Hydra, they were small. They were point sources. They weren't um, more than a pixel in the field of view for almost the entire approach. So we could rely on those. And those also, because they were farther uh, away from the center of Pluto, and the center, the very the very center of the system, um, they gave us a, a longer baseline, we call it navigation. And it basically, we were able to sense the parallax in the optical navigation images sooner uh, with those objects because they were farther out from Pluto, um, you know, gave us a longer baseline t- to determine our position and our time of close approach, which is a big one. We, you know, that's a, one of the most uncertain things. We don't know exactly how far Pluto out, was out um, in its orbit from the sun precisely. Mm-hmm. Um, and we needed to target not only uh, a box in space, but also in time um, so that we could, uh, you know, make sure that we're flying by or have at least knowledge of what time and tell the spacecraft, okay, shift everything because this is the time of close approach based on the OpNav data and the parallax that we're seeing. New Horizons made a successful flyby of Pluto the, in, uh, and past the Pluto system. And then it had a secondary target, uh, which uh, was determined by observations by the New Horizons spacecraft itself, if I'm not incorrect. Yes, yes. So uh, on New Year's Day 2019, um, New Horizons flew by uh, the first um, you know, Kuiper Belt object, small uh, object in the Kuiper Belt um, called Orokoth, or originally it was called 2014 MU69. Um, and uh, and that was uh, presented its own kind of challenges. It was similar to Pluto, obviously the same spacecraft um, and same you know direction in the sky, but um, much much smaller of an object. And there was a lot of uncertainty as to whether it was really it was one object, it was two lobes that were fused together, or was it a close binary? Um, we saw we knew a little bit about its shape because of an amazing technique called uh, star occultation, where we can um, measure from the Earth um, the size and shape. Of of a sm- of a small object in space when it passes in front of a star and it blinks and that blink is really like a shadow on the Earth that um, if we set up telescopes in the right spot we can uh, measure the length of that blink and have uh, be able to reconstruct the shape. So uh, so we saw uh, um, the scientists you know found that there were kind of it looked like there were two lobes uh, of this body and we weren't sure if it was just the geometry during that occultation that there were actually it was a binary object or it was you know touching uh, and it was a contact binary uh-huh. um, and we weren't going to figure that out until the final days before the encounter and so that was uh, you know there were contingency plans and the the navigation and science teams were looking very closely, um, waiting for that signature to see: Are we seeing two objects or one? And it turns out it was it was one object that's fused, two lobes fused together uh, at a, a, 
you know, his neck. It almost looks like a snowman. Mm. Uh, but then when we flew past it, uh, we realized it was flat like a pancake <laughs> um, on the backside. So uh, very interesting object, unlike anything else we had seen prior um, and, and really cool first exploration of kind of, you know, what's hanging out there in, in the icy uh, Kuiper Belt. Now, just uh, let, let's just give the audience, uh, the listener, a bit of an idea about how far this thing is. Because Pluto orbits are about 40 AU from Earth, uh, Earth-Sun distances, okay? We're, we're at 93, roughly 93 million miles from the Sun on average, which is one astronomical unit of Earth-Sun distance. So, and this thing is a billion miles further. Uh, do you happen to know how many AU this Arakop uh, is projected to orbit the Sun? Um, I don't know that offhand, but I do know uh, how how long it takes for the signal <laughs> to travel, um, oh, okay. or for light to travel. So for Pluto, it was about four and a half hours Good for uh, our, you know, sig- for just the signal, you know, at, traveling at the speed of light to leave the spacecraft and reach the Earth. Um, and at Orokoth, it was, I believe, around six hours. Um, so, and now I think the spacecraft is already at about eight hours, one way light time. Um, so it's really getting out there and, uh, you know, the longer it takes for the signal, just the harder it is, um, to, to command and operate a spacecraft when you have such long delays, it takes 16 hours, uh, to send a signal and, and receive the receipt, (laughs) um, you know, that, that the spacecraft heard, uh, heard your command. And it's projected to be operational. The New Horizons spacecraft is projected to be operational for at least another decade or so. Yes, the plutonium um, decay should keep it uh, functioning um, into the, the mid 2030s, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure if there's going to be another close flyby. I think they're looking into it. Uh, and part of the problem is that this is an area of sky. Um, that is uh, right, um, the background stars are around the galactic center. So they're very dense and it's really hard to discover new objects in this region of the sky because it's just littered with stars. Um, And so that was a lot of, uh, that's provided a lot of challenge for even finding, discovering the uh, Orokoth. It took um, like a decade of, um, of work to to discover that object um, that was within reach for an extended mission. Mm. Uh, so it's possible, but um, you know maybe not so totally likely that we would be able to do a third uh, close flyby. Mm-hmm. But what they are doing is doing what they call distant KBO observations. So there's I think you know been dozens of observations that the telescopes on board New Horizons have taken of um, of distant Kuiper Belt objects to help us. Uh, you know, clean as much information as we can when it's still only like a point source. So it helps us determine its, it, you know, refine its orbit properties. And, you know, there's there's probably some scientific um, uh, properties you can also determine from that. So um, that's what New Horizons is up to these days. So let's talk about the OSIRIS-REx mission. Told GPS World, uh, which is a a trade publication that the Kinetics navigation team spent two years learning how to navigate around Bennu, the asteroid Bennu, using optical navigation techniques. Uh, can you explain uh, explain how this works? 
Sure. So uh, I'm going to use the term bootstrapping again. Um, so, <laughs> okay. you know, ob- uh, uh, Bennu is a, is a small uh, rubble pile asteroid, uh, near Earth asteroid. So um, much, much closer than what we were just talking about with Pluto. Could that uh, be more of a different mission? Um, and Bennu is only 500 meters across. So it's the one of the smallest uh, objects ever explored in our solar system. And it, and it is the smallest object ever orbited by a spacecraft. So um, we had to start, we, you know, on it, we approach, we um, break and uh, our velocity and slow down. So we are kind of rendezvousing uh, and matching the velocity of Bennu. Um, and then from then that point on, we can operate and uh, use very little fuel to kind of bounce around and, and uh, what we call proximity operations around Bennu. Um, and uh, and we learned a lot during, we just completed, concluded about two years of zigzagging our way around, orbiting, popping out of orbit, doing hyperbolic flybys, um, you know, collecting all sorts of, mapping the surface um, to ex- extraordinary resolution. And, uh, and, and we had to bootstrap our way there. So we started in the approach phase. And then once we got close, um, we targeted uh, th- several flybys. Now, what is a north, hyper- south, and What's a hyperbolic flyby? You mentioned that term hyperbolic. What's a hyperbolic flyby? All flybys are hyperbolic. Um, typically, it's when you're not in orbit, but you're, um, you know, you're you're flying by, and the gravity is bending uh, your trajectory slightly, um, but uh, it's it's not a closed orbit. Okay. So we will do a hyperbolic flyby, and then we'll literally make like a you know a ninety degree turn and come around and do another flyby, and we can do that at Bennu with very little fuel because it's such a small microgravity environment that they're that we're operating around and okay. everything is done relative to Bennu. Okay. Um so uh we we did some flybys of the north and south pole and the equator to determine um just you know what the mass is of Bennu to about 1% and then that allowed us to um to plan a trajectory and a series of maneuvers that put us into a, a delicate uh orbit and that was um you know a spaceflight record of first um, t- you know, smallest orbit and smallest object ever orbited in spaceflight history. Uh, and then once we got into orbit, we switched from using, like I, what I had mentioned, this, um, using the center of Bennu as the measurement in OpNav to using landmarks. So we um, worked with the scientists and we built up catalogs of the surface, little maps, uh, 3D models of, of postage stamps all over the surface. Um, and we used those uh, to do landmark navigation. And, and that was really required to, to perform the rest of the mission um, we needed that accuracy that that landmark navigation afforded us. So how does this type of in situ work actually at an asteroid or at a planetary body uh, push the boundaries of your field of deep space uh, optical navigation? So, um, you know, it's, it's all, again, about uh, just building up your catalog of experience and tools um, and never know what you're going to... Uh, Come, uh, come across that uh, one is going to help you again someday. You mentioned astrodynamics. Uh, uh, for the listener, could you kind of give us a parenthetical definition of what you mean by astrodynamics? Yeah, so it's, it's you know, the dynamics of, of space objects uh, at the highest level. So space navigation, flight dynamics, it's, um, 
you know, about uh, both natural bodies and also um, man-made objects uh, like spacecraft, um, how they, uh, you know, the environment around them that acts on them in space. So navigation, you know, you don't just launch something and it goes in a straight line. Um, It's tugged and pulled by all the different um, uh, massive objects in our solar system, the sunlight, interacts with the surface of the spacecraft or the surface of the comet um, and uh, imparts solar radiation pressure, which is another force that has to be modeled and understood. Um, so there's all of these really at the heart of space navigation are uh, is these these concepts of astrodynamics that um, that tug and pull and affect our, um, you know, that we have to understand in order to predict where we're going. We have to model all these things, these interactions and these forces so that when we project where the trajectory is going in the future, um, we can account for all of those things. So basically it's how the space environment, the environment of space uh, with all the gravitational, the celestial mechanics in any given solar system affects uh, artificial uh, spacecraft as they're traveling through. Uh, you mentioned the hyperbolic orbits. Uh, I mean, I assume even Pluto was large enough to kind of affect, it, even though it was a it was a one way flyby. I would assume that that Pluto's gravity had a bit of an of an effect on the trajectory, right? A very small bend. <laughs> okay. Um, but yes, yes. Okay. You, we touched on comets, and I know that comets are dear to your heart because. <laughs> you actually discovered a dead comet uh, when you were a teenager. Is that right? You were you were very yes. early on in your career. Um, yes, I did discover a, a dead comet uh, with a, with a group of other uh, high school students uh, through a program at the Adler Planetarium in Chicago called the Astro Science Workshop. Um, and that summer, it, it's just uh, blows my mind that that you know I ended up. Um, in this field of astrometry and doing very similar things as I did that summer, the first summer I got interested in space and applied for this program. Um, and we use telescopes up at the Yerkes Observatory in Wisconsin, which is the home of the, the largest lens-based telescope ever manufactured. And they also have a couple um, uh, modern telescopes that are uh, reflective um, with large apertures. And so what we did in, um, is... Uh, go hunting for um, asteroids uh, or minor planets, we call um, asteroids and comets, that needed more observation. So there's a minor planet center, and they put out a list of, um, they keep a catalog of every um, minor planet, every asteroid, comet, Kuiper Belt object in the solar system that we know about. And, um, you know, some some of those objects only have been observed for one or two nights. So there's not very much information, um, you know, data to tell us what those orbits are. So so they put out uh, these calls to citizen scientists and and any, uh, what I love about this is anybody could do this with a telescope, uh, you know, decent setup in a dark sky. And as citizen scientists, um, you can help the Minor Planet Center just like I did in high school by uh, looking in the sky and trying to find these objects because they're only, they've only been observed a couple days. There's a lot of uncertainty in where they might be in the night sky. Okay, so they say here it's, we think it's going to be this magnitude and have this kind of area of uncertainty. So point your telescope 
in, in this area and whatever you got to do to, um, you know, take images, blink them, see if you see anything moving. Um, so we did that on a lot of objects. And one of our, um, you know, we, we blink, we find an object, we measured its location, we sent that data to the Minor Planet <coughs> Center. And they um, published one of our data sets immediately and said, uh, and basically we refined, we updated, uh, you know, our knowledge of the orbit of this, uh, what they thought was an asteroid, by like 40 astronomical units. So instead of it being kind of in a circular orbit, it was in a highly eccentric comet orbit, um, but it just didn't show any signs of activity. So maybe it's orbited the sun so many times that uh, it no longer has the ice to sublimate and create a tail. But just our, you know, our measurements uh, that night um, helped uh, understand that this was on a you know very different orbit than they originally thought, and it was actually a dead comet. So a dead comet, uh, uh, e.g., a comet that has lost its ice and does not have the brilliant tail and the coma uh, that a typical active nu- uh, active comet has. Uh, is that correct? Yeah. But you also mentioned to me in the pre-interview that uh, cometary orbits and cometary trajectories. Um, are kind of essential to understanding navigation within our solar system or something to that effect. Yeah, actually, I was reading in this um, navigation book that, um, that uh, you know, this, in the 50s and in, in the mid-century, uh, you know, comets were of, you know, high interest to astronomers uh, because they were on these very odd orbits. Um, obviously, they put brilliant displays in our night sky and, um, you know, did they or- originate from the outer depths of our solar system or the inner stellar objects? You know, where, um, you know, it, there was not a lot of information about them and they were really a high focus um, of study. And um, so, so astrodynamics kind of came to be academically, um, you know, through the study of comets, uh, in addition to merging with, you know, the need to to track missiles and track spacecraft going to the moon. Um, but it was the, it was the commentary, the astronomers that built a lot of the, um, the models cause they needed to, to model what was going on with the comet. Um, as it gets closer to the sun, you know, there's new forces acting on it, not just gravity, but, um, the jets and, uh, and it, you know, as a proxy for space navigation, um, you know, a lot of the same principles, same models need to be applied um, to understand the orbits and the orbits of comets. Let's talk about the next, your next big project, which is the, for an optical navigation, you're the team lead for NASA's Lucy mission, which NASA says will be the first spacecraft to explore a, f- a family of asteroids known as the Trojans that orbit the sun in front of and behind Jupiter. Set to launch in 2021, Lucy will fly by six asteroid targets, each in different orbits over the course of 12 years. And you're the, as I mentioned, the optical navigation technical lead. Uh, the spacecraft will take pictures, and then it will send it back down to Earth, where, will you, where you will use software to determine where the picture was taken based on the location of stars in the target. So Lucy, um, yeah, so you mentioned that it's, uh, the objective is to fly by several um, objects in the uh, Jupiter Trojan asteroids, which are objects that are um, leading and trailing Jupiter in its orbit around the sun, but they're actually 
not anywhere near Jupiter. They're in the same, there's the same distance as Jupiter from the sun, um, but they're in these gravitational wells that we call Lagrange points um, that are gravitational wells that kind of are balanced um, because of the gravity of the sun and Jupiter combined. And um, so there's lots of objects trapped there and uh it's a unique population that's never been explored so so lucy's going to go do this grand tour of the the jupiter trojan asteroids um on a really amazing trajectory that's going to allow us to do all those things so instead of one flyby we're going to get multiple flybys in one year and then wait you know six more years and then uh, get another couple uh, flybys um so uh it'll be really exciting to to be able to you know, image in high resolution, um, a bunch more, um, you know, remnants of the formation of our solar system. What about autonomous navigation? How would that work? I mean, you say maybe eventually we'll see more autonomous navigation of robotic spacecraft. Yeah. So, um, there is some autonomous navigation happening today. Um, like I mentioned, um, with with bootstrapping our way uh, to exploring these objects, um, you know, it's really hard in the beginning. You, ha- you you don't know, you know, this is pure exploration. So you don't know what it looks like and the properties of the object until you get there. Um, so that part is, is going to be a hard part to automate. But once you get, um, you know, accustomed to flying around this object, once you've, um, you know, done the detailed analysis and and, and uh, data collection to um, to characterize the whole environment astrodynamical environment um, of this uh, you know of a mission at that point you could start to build in autonomy so you don't um, you know you could program the spacecraft with what you know um, to do more of the work for you and and that's actually what we did on on Osiris Rex um, the last four hours uh, of of uh, the the tag event the touch and go sample collection was autonomously navigated and uh that was um you know we worked to program the spacecraft and the software that Lockheed Martin implemented was very similar to the landmark navigation techniques we had been using uh at Bennu already and um and it brought us down and was phenomenally successful so um you know that maybe wouldn't have been selected if, if that was our primary method. But we actually, that was a backup method that we had to employ because um, the environment of Bennu was so challenging. The surface was so much more rocky than we expected that we had to navigate down to an area on the surface that was 10 times smaller than we designed the mission, uh, flight mission to do. Does a private uh, contractor, you were technically a private contractor of NASA Kinetics, uh, your company, uh, do you have any advantages over a public space agency like NASA when it comes to, to the field of optical navigation? So in my experience, you know, a small private company like Kinetics um, has a lot more agility to continue um, to develop and implement state-of-the-art algorithms. Um, sometimes at institutions as large as NASA or JPL, it requires more red tape um, or justification to make updates to their, you know, uh, t- tried and true and tested software. Um, uh, but, you know, Kinetics is the first 
private uh, commercial company to provide deep space navigation services uh, to NASA. Um, but there's also uh, amazing capabilities, and we work very closely with our um, partners at NASA to um, you know, to complete the whole flight dynamic system. Um, and there's a lot of elements of the navigation team that we collaborate on. So does navigation research get enough funding? I would say it does. There's a lot of, um, a, a, NASA does a lot of funding, especially geared towards universities, um, upon which we leverage for real missions. So like the orbit we used on OSIRIS-REx is a frozen orbit. It's a very special orbit that allowed us to have, a, um, have stability around this really small object. And that was something that was developed and uh, at the academic level, and we employed it for the first time on a real mission, and it was very successful. What needs to be done, though, to continue to advance the field of optical navigation? Well, one is, I think, uh, getting more missions out there. So we learn and um, and you know expand our capabilities in navigation with every new object explored because they always present new challenges um that uh that help us push the state of the art and push the boundary of our capabilities so the more the more missions the better what's the far future of space navigation both within our own solar system and in inter- interstellar space so in the very far future you know hopefully We'll be uh, interstellar by then. Uh, it'd be amazing to have, uh, um, you know, visited a, another star or object uh, beyond our um, solar system. Um, but also, there's there's so many moons of planets, um, probes. You know, a lot of a lot of what we're doing now is first reconnaissance, the first flyby or orbit mission. Um, but as technology gets better, hopefully. Um, you know, especially uh, propulsion capabilities um, could uh, could really enable some amazing uh, exploration in our uh, solar system and beyond in the future. And um, and and autonomy, you know, the ability to you know put long, you know, have have hardware that lasts a very long time in space that is tolerant to radiation is another challenge right now. Deep space components. Um, they require uh, a lot of heritage. You don't want to, you know, send a probe on ten-year flight to Pluto and have anything fail on you on the way there. So, a lot of times we use flight-proven um, uh, heritage uh, hardware, and um, and it's and it's much. It's very, you know, can be antiquated compared to what we have on the ground. Um, the the computer system itself is one of the the um, the most challenging things, especially when you are thinking about automation and, uh, you know, f- being able to put capabilities on the spacecraft from a software perspective, because there's only a couple computers that are now very, very dated and have very limited processing um, capabilities that are the flight proven radiation hardened computers. And so, so until those kind of catch up to common standards, you know, we're always going to be able to crunch the data so much better on the ground than we can on the spacecraft. Um, and that's a huge limitation that we have right now um, that will hopefully improve uh, going forward. So you were uh, quoted as saying that one of your strengths is logistics and sorting out how all the pieces of a given system fit together. Um, you noted that growing up, you spent a lot of time in the office of your family's uh, transportation logistics business 
where you learn the importance of every detail coming together to get the goods from point A to point B. How did that help you? How does that continue to help you today? Um, you know, it's uh, the team is so important, the um, camaraderie and uh, nature of uh, the teamwork that is required to um, pull a mission like this off. And so, um, you know, reflecting on growing up in, uh, you know, bouncing around an office that, um, you know, was a logistical business. Um, I think, and my mom is a very, you know, logistic oriented person. Um, that really set me up for, um, this kind of, uh, very orchestrated, um, career that you have to, um, you know, everything needs to line up at exactly the right time and it requires communication and teamwork and, um, and growing up in that, you know, fun, um, family business environment, kind of, I think, laid the groundwork for my expectations on, uh, of, of teamwork and collaboration on, um, on another logistical problem like this to solve. But you obviously also have a, a love of the sky. What do you actually think about when you look up into a night sky? Do you automatically think of dead comets and, <laughs> and asteroids? Uh, what goes through your head? Um, well, you know, I don't get a lot of opportunities as a city girl these days to, um, to, to see the night sky in, in all of its glory. But I did this summer um, get to see some pretty amazing skies out west. And, um, you know, it just, it draws me in. It makes, it reminds me of why I first got interested in astronomy um, as, as a high school student was, um, you know, just how vast and how many, how much, un, how many unknowns there are out there that we, uh, you know, that I could contribute to, uh, to helping understand. And that was really, um, you know, how I framed it for myself when I was younger was um, that, you know, there's so much out there to explore and to learn about. Um, and, uh, you know, I wanted to dedicate my life to, to helping contribute to that effort in some way and expanding our collective human knowledge about um, the solar system and beyond. So, Coralie, uh, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment or learn more? Yeah, um, I, I uh, post a lot on LinkedIn about my mission activity and resources. So I'd say LinkedIn, Coralie Adam, is the best way to contact me. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at B. Dormany on my Twitter feed. Coralie Adam, thanks for helping us better understand the future of interplanetary navigation. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at B. Dormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time. Clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>